0: Everyone, our message this morning will come from the Word of God, Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Psalm 110, obviously, by the title of this message, deals with two main points Christ our King and High Priest. And there's also a, a little bit at the end where the king is viewed as also the judge of the world. So let's turn to our Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is one of, the, of many messianic psalms in the Old Testament. There's plenty of them. You know, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 22. We could keep going. There's messianic psalms and portions of psalms that refer directly to Messiah. Now, concerning Psalm 110, there's, there are 14 direct quotations from this psalm in the New Testament. And we're going to be looking at a few of those this morning. Plus dozens of allusions to its contents. Now, with one thing too to uh, keep in mind as we're going through our lesson this morning, that every citation of Psalm 110 in the New Testament is directly applied to Jesus Christ. Directly applied. Now... In this psalm, we have, uh, we have basically an outline of Messiah's redemptive uh, mission. He's portrayed as king in verses 1 through 3. He's high priest, verse 4. And then conquering judge in the remaining three verses. So that's how the psalm lays out. So let's begin now by reading Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will voluntarily, will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth to thee as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. An interesting ending to this psalm. But Let's open in a word of prayer. Father God, we come to you this morning, Lord, and and I ask on... uh, my behalf and everyone else's behalf, that, Lord, that you would give me clarity of thought. And number one, your truth would be put forth this morning. And again, Lord, we are confident as if that takes place, we are fully confident that your spirit will apply these truths to each and every one of our hearts as they need applying. Again, Lord, we thank you for this time together. And again, we thank you that the the truth is preached at this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Christ our King, verses 1 through 3. The Lord says to my Lord. I'll stop right there for now. I need to define a couple of terms here. The word Lord. You see the first... <clears throat> now, if, if, take, does anybody here using the Legacy Standard Bible? We've got one. Okay. In the Legacy Standing Bi- Standard Bible, that first word Lord, which is, notice it's all capital letters, Is actually the word Yahweh. Okay, when you see that in the in the English translations, your your better ones anyway, the word Yahweh will be translated Lord in all capital letters. Says to my Lord, capital L and then lowercase. Right, that is another word which we look at. Now the Lord is Yahweh. Now Yahweh is the sacred name for God, having its origin at the burning bush, recorded in Exodus three. 13 through 15, where, and I'll just have a glimpse of portion of it here, where Moses asked God, You quote, if the sons of Israel should ask, What is his name? referring to the God sending me to, to my people. God re- replied to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. <clears throat> so, that, that the term, I am that I am, is the term. Yahweh that's where it comes from it comes from that statement and as we it just so happened we that was we dealt with that again in Sunday school class where um, <clears throat> the Lord remember in John chapter 8 when he was uh, dickering with the uh, critics which um, actually he didn't dicker with the critics he usually blew their doors off in most conversations one of them we'll look at this morning but um, <clears throat> He was saying that uh, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And they said to him, well, you're not even 50 years old. And you, you know Abraham? And then he replied to that by saying, before Abraham was, I am. Linking himself to the burning bush. The God that was spoke at the burning bush. The other Lord is Adonai, which means a ruler, controller, Lord, master. Now that word is used of both you know, God and men. And there's another little version of it in verse 5 where it says the Lord, again, is at thy right hand. That's another version, Adonai. a little bit more emphatic form of the first Lord. They're virtually the same, but sometimes it's a little more emphatic um, and, uh, and speaks of greater authority and power. The word Lord speaks like Lord, Master, the guy in charge, okay? And so there you have it. Now, Note in the psalm, now in this psalm, as we read through here, to kind of try to keep uh, track of what's going on, in this psalm, Lord, the one used the all caps, Yahweh, Yahweh is a reference to God the Father. As we we read through this psalm, that helps keep things straight. And then the the terms Lord, small l, lowercase o-r-d, that's referring to Christ. Okay, so I'll point that out a little bit on the way, but that helps keep things straight. Otherwise, you'd get like, who's talking now? Okay, so we can get that going. Now, verse 1 is one of those passages that gives clear evidence of the deity of Messiah. A concept uh, totally rejected by modern Judaism. Okay, that's something to note. Ever, matter of fact, ever since the first coming of Christ a lot of messianic passages that were so clear as to who they were talking about. Um, Judaism has rejected them as being messianic. I mean, it shows you how blinded they are, even in our day and age. Now, Jesus quotes Psalm 110 uh, to... uh, That and, and he's pointing out the fact when he's quoted in Matthew 22:41 through 46, we're going to, matter of fact, we can turn there that he's quoting and referring to the fact and, and he's going to uh, point to the fact that Christ is both human and divine. Let's look at Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22. We'll spend a little bit of time there. Can't spend too much or we'll never get through Psalm 110. Psalm 22. Actually, the, account, the, uh, the context of this goes back a ways. Now, Jesus actually uh, has been bombarded by a series of questions. We, remember, we can go back to 2215 where the, it says, then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. So then the, he just, a series of questions just keep coming. Matter of fact, in this first section, you will at verse sixteen of, of Matthew twenty-two, and they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, "Teacher, we know that you are a, a, a truth, you are truthful, and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any." But well, I tell you, you talk about a setup. You know, that's kind of like in a in a debate when somebody says, uh, "With all due respect." Here comes the hammer. (laughs) Well, this is the setup. You know, just schmooze them, make them relax, get them off guard, and then boom, throw them a trick question. That's what they thought they were going to do. So they went in there, and well, Jesus knew, obviously. Remember, this is the poll tax about paying the poll tax. And then Jesus responds in verse 18, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? And he said, Show me the coin. He goes, Whose image is on it? And he says, Caesar's. I said, Well, he just said, hey, give to Caesar what Caesar, and give to God what's God. He already established the point he's trying to make. You hypocrites. Okay? And then we move forward, and the next group that shows up is the Sadducees. And uh, verse 23 says, on the same day, the Sadducees, and I love this in parentheses, says, who say there is no resurrection. Well, this shows the phoniness of them. Who shows there is no resurrection. They give this preposterous event, situation where... Uh, I'll just read it, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and and raise up an an offspring to his brother. Okay, fine. says, now, and here's the preposterous uh, example of illustration. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died and having no offspring and then left his wife to his brother. And so also the second and the third, down to the seventh. I mean, that is just a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, the odds on that are just, forget about it. Just preposterous. Just a preposterous example of anything. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. And then then he goes on. Well, verse 28 shows their hypocrisy. Well, when they say, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife is there? And these are people that don't even believe in a resurrection. And so they're, they're, just, they're just being totally hypocritical. Jesus, great answer. And then verse 30 goes on, for in the resurrection, either marriage or given marriage, you're just like the angels in heaven. They're not given to reproducing. When we get there, that's it. It's over. Verse 31 and 32. Now this is a couple of verses to remember when you're thinking about the uh, inspiration and authority of scripture. Verse 31. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God saying? And what was that? Well, this is a quotation right out of Exodus 3.6, which says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. you got a double whammy here. You've got Jesus speaking to the fact of a resurrection He's also speaking to the fact of the inspired scriptures as being the very word of God. Okay, the very word of God. Now, verse forty-one is uh, <clears throat> the illustration. This morning says, "Again, now the now while the Pharisees were gathered." And so the Pharisees now, we, we read from here that the the Sadducees just got blown away. It Says now with the, while the Pharisees were gathered together. Well, there's another question, too. They sent a lawyer, and he talked about the two greatest commandments. Our Lord answered it perfectly. So now we move down to verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Let's turn the tables here a little bit. He said to them, Then how does... And just listen. Just... Our Lord is so smart. Then how does David, in the Spirit, call him Lord, saying... The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And then he asks a follow up question. He says, If David then calls him Lord, how is it that he's his son? Honest question. Well, you know, look at this. By pointing this out, by asking this Pharisees, he says, well, the only way that can be is if he is both human and divine. It's the only way that can even be a possibility. He's human and divine. Right? Matter of fact, one of these Sunday schools, we'll be talking about that, the hypostatic union. We'll be doing that in weeks to come. Stay tuned that's that's it and he just again once again uh just takes it right to him and how does he do it with scripture with scripture that is why it's so important that we know and understand the word of god that's given to us on just before we go back to psalm 110 I, i loved the reaction verse 46 and no one was able to answer him a word Because, see, they knew all along, through his entire ministry, he's been presenting himself not only as Messiah, but being equal with God, as being divine. And, matter of fact, that's where every time they tried to stone him, it was for that fact, for the most part. Remember? Uh, Was it John 5.18? It's it's not for breaking the Sabbath, but for you uh, calling God your Father, making yourself equal with God. I mean, every time Jesus said... God is my father, he made himself equal with God. So, divine. So there you go, and I love this. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. It took him a long time to learn it, but here we are in Matthew 22, and I mean, we're in Passion Week, so Jesus is going to be uh, paying the price for our sin and soon returning into heaven. And that brings us right back to, to Psalm 110 because where it says the Lord says up to my Lord in the, in the history of Jesus' ministry on earth, where are we? The Lord said to my Lord. He's sitting at the right hand of God. When did that happen? After the resurrection, he ascended up. Remember? He ascended up into heaven. And now where he still is at the right hand of the Father. And that's where Psalm 110 picks up. If you want to look at that from a historical perspective, this psalm picks up Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. Okay, the Lord said unto my Lord, "Sit at my right hand." That right hand is a special place of honor. That you can—that's all through Scripture. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter two, you don't need to turn. I'll just read it to you unless you want to. But Acts chapter two, verses thirty-two to thirty-six. Now that's part of. That magnificent sermon, Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, the very first sermon the church ever heard was this one, and there's an i want to pull an excerpt out of there that ties in with what we're talking about this morning, especially about him being in an exalted place acts two thirty two says this Jesus again, he's speaking to the crowd. Virtually a 98% Jewish audience. There might have been some Gentile proselytes there, but primarily Jewish audience. This Jesus God raised up up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted, exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And then Peter goes on to explain, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself, referring to Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Okay? And then we move on from verse about again about making your enemies a footstool. Again, now that is symbolic of the eventual total victory that Jesus is going to have over all his enemies of the world. That is everybody that's ever. Um, <clears throat> this one's looking at him now. We're going to see later on as a conquering king as well. But uh, that one day it's going to happen. And but. Uh, Making your enemy a footstool is, um, <clears throat> again, it's, uh, it's symbolic for total victory over one's enemy. A good example of that is in Joshua 10, 24, and I'll, I'll just read it to you here. When they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of, the, of, of men of war who had gone with him, Come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and put their feet on the necks of the kings. And that's symbolic. By stepping on the guy's neck, put him like, treating him like your footstool, that shows your total superiority and victory over that defeated enemy. And that is the scene there. Again, Christ, where is he? Up there on the, at the right hand of the Father, just waiting for the day. When he will return as conquering king. And that's what this psalm is looking for. Is looking forward to. Just as we are looking forward to that same event. Then verse 2. Again, this total victory is going to be further explained in the latter three verses. But verse 2, going just taking them in order. The Lord, Yahweh, here, will stretch forth... Your strong scepter, your being the son, right? your strong scepter again, this scepter now from the human side, that is Christ as being son of David, ties back to Messiah coming from the line of Judah now, way back in genesis forty nine verses eight through ten, which is Jacob's prophecy that he gave to each and each one of the twelve sons representing the twelve tribes. When you get the portion of the one for Judah, and again, I've got it, but that's Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, and um, that I'm going to quote from here. It says, Judah, your brothers, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Hmm. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. A reference here again to the Messiah. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. All the peoples. I mean, there's... We could take this passage and what you would end up doing, well, it's like we did months ago, another series on eschatology. This is all about the second coming here. This is all about that. Where Judah, a lion's, well, like a... You might think of it like in Revelation, the lion of the tribe of Judah. They just didn't make that up. (laughs) that's all his basis in scripture. I mean, this... Magnificent word that we have is just so coherent with each other. It just gels. The scepter, the king's scepter, between your feet. You can just picture him on the throne with the scepter, but sitting there with the scepter between his feet, just looking out. I mean, and it's going to happen. And then also, the scepter can also be pointing to the divine nature as well. We're close enough. I'm going to just turn to. Uh, Psalm 2, Psalm 2, 9 through 12, which says this. Speaking of Messiah, Psalm 2, another one, another Messianic Psalm. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him! Again, one of the many warnings of Scripture: Be wise, be wise. And he has, he addresses to the kings of the earth: Be wise, O kings! One day, and we know more information having. The full revelation of God. We've got the completed canon. These people had pieces of it. And we've got full copies. We've, got, we've probably each got 10 copies of it in our houses. You know. And every now and then we ought to pick it up and read it. You know. But anyway. We, we've got these things. And it's just again so consistent. Be wise. Be wise. Because one day the king of kings is coming back. He's coming back. And That's why I say they need to be wise or they will perish. They will be crushed under his rod of iron. And then, too, back to one ten, It also says in verse 2 that um, our Lord is to rule in the midst of thine enemies. He will rule over them. And we talk about rule in the rod of iron. We're going to see that. I mean, it's again, it's all over Scripture. Um, Again, remember, it starts... Revelation, you can read Revelation 19, where he comes back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You got Armageddon plus other things. And uh, again, it's judgment time. It's judgment time. And then we get to verse 3. Where it says, your people will, will volunteer freely in the day of, of your power, in, in holy array from the womb of the dawn, thy youth are to thee as a dew. A lot of poetic language here, but basically what it's saying is, now your people, obviously, are those who are true believers. And uh, <clears> then <throat> it's got direct application to the future believing nation of Israel. But it applies to anybody that, that believes. This truth applies to all that are true believers. Those who are true believers will willingly and gladly serve their king. They will not have to be forced. They, they, no rod of iron is needed. As a matter of fact, we can't do another study of that this morning. But when you look at when he sets up that millennial kingdom, the rod of his people are the saved people. And it's the others that he will be dealing with. And then you put, note at the, his first coming... The king was rejected. He came to his own and his own, you know, who were his his own, did not receive him. John 1.11. He came to Israel. Israel rejected him. But that's not going to, the next time when he returns, it will be different. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul explains it this way. In Romans 9.27, matter of fact, Romans 9.10 and 11, you read that as a whole It's actually the big content. There's a lot of things in there. But the whole thing is about the eventual um, salvation of national Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And um, 9.27 says, quoting from Isaiah, it says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Just keep that, the remnant that will be saved. Now you move toward the end of that whole section. In Romans eleven twenty-five 25 through 27, it says, For I do not want you, <clears throat> brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Remember, a partial hardening. Not total hardening. They're not gone for good. It's temporary. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This, this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins. And those are quotations from Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27. When I take away their sins, Psalm 110, verse 3 says, The people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Where it says there, in holy array, that is, or you could be translated actually better, maybe, in the splendor of holiness refers to the natural conversion of Israel that is not only prophesied, but is a covenant. And you can see that covenant. I've got it written down. You can look up yourself if you'd like. It's in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. This is often called in the Old Testament as the new covenant, the new covenant to Israel. Jeremiah says this, Jeremiah 31 thirty one, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. At this point in time the Israel and Judah, Israel Northern Ten, Judah, Judah and Benjamin, the southern tribes, split, they're divided, okay, kings in each section, they've been divided for some time now. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the in the day I took them By the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And this is what's important. I will put my law within them and on their hearts I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. That's the difference of this. When this all happens, when they walk into their kingdom, they will all know me, says God. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Now that is a description of a total salvation that is the description of salvation that is just not good wishes that is a real salvation because that's what happens that's what happened to each and every one of us here who truly repented of their sins and accepted christ as lord and savior god will give you total forgiveness and our sin he will remember no more thanks be to god right and then that little phrase at the end, we're into verse three and one in Psalm one ten, where it says, "Your youth are to you as the dew." Now that's the, the father speaking to the son. Better translated, "The dew of your youthfulness will be yours," referring to Christ. And basically, at the ascension, Jesus went back into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And at that age, he was the peak of his manhood, approximately thirty-three. And those of you that are in that approach age group would probably agree with me, right? And I'll put it to you this way. When you hit 33, 34, 35, it ain't going to get much better. <laughs> so enjoy it while you got it, okay? You know, enjoy it while you got it. And basically what it says is when, when he returns, he will be seen as being in the prime of life. Jesus will not come back looking old and decrepit. And I I think I've got a I think I've got some good news for all of us. Neither will we. We may we'll go out that way, but we'll come back. We'll come back better. Okay? But again, because we are going to be like Christ. We're going to be like Christ. And he's going to be looking at his peak and so will we. That's why I dressed up this morning. <laughs> now, Verse 4, Psalm 110, verse 4. And this, too, an extremely tremendous passion. Christ, our high priest. Christ, our high priest. We come to this, we come to verse 4. We really, we read through this. We've come to the, not only the center, but the climax, really, of this psalm. This is the climax of this psalm, where... Verse 4 says, the Lord has sworn, that's, and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now there's one, that whole concept of the, to really understand what's being said here, we would have to do a study of the book of Hebrews, which is really kind of tough in a half hour, okay? Okay. So I'm not going to attempt it, but I'm going to read some excerpts from it because it's, we, we need to understand enough to fully appreciate what's being said here. Now, where it says the Lord, again, that Lord, all caps, the Lord has sworn, that's Yahweh, has sworn, and will not change his mind. You know, there's, there's only two recorded instances where God employs the human practice of oath-taking. You know, and... <clears throat> One is to Abraham, where he was preparing to offer his son Isaac, remember that, where he was going to offer him on the altar, and he said, whoa, stop, and then he swore an oath that, basically, he swore an oath that you will indeed receive the Abrahamic covenant, which I already made, <laughs> but he's just kind of restating a fact. He's just making it more clear to Abraham, saying, hey, that promise I made you, It is indeed a fact. He's just basically reinforcing what we know to be true. It's just emphasis. And then the the other uh, time he swore an oath was to David. And it's the same thing there. He was swearing to David, I've taken oath to you, David, that you will indeed um, be your throne, will last forever, and so will your descendants. Okay, it's again, it's a oath, Promising the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, where the throne of David will last forever. And guess who sits on that throne of David from the line of David? Jesus. He's going to be the one. And funny, Jesus sits on the throne as king, but he will also sit on that throne as high priest. Because where is that, if you remember from the study in the millennial kingdom, where is that throne found? In the temple. The high our king and priest will be sitting on that throne, ruling the world. Now, now, as I say, now both of these oaths were and the matter of fact, you can read about that in Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is all about the Davidic covenant. And so Psalm 89, 34 to 36 is what I was going to turn to, but we're getting a little short here. So, but Psalm 89, the whole thing is about that Davidic covenant and the fact that it's happening. (laughs) Nothing's going to stop it. And see, Psalm 89, written to the Jews, they needed that reassurance. It's going, it's happening, it's going to happen. It will happen. Don't sweat it. Now, the next phrase where it says, and will not change his mind. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That's a direct statement to another one. We studied not too long ago, a direct statement to God's attribute of immutability. Remember that word, some of you? Immutability. What's that? Well, that's his unchangingness. He he is totally unchanging in his essence, character, purpose, and promises. When God makes a covenant, he's not backing out of it. He's not backing out of it. And again, what does Numbers 23, 19 says? God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. That is, change your mind. Um, Has he said and will he not do it? The answer to that hypothetical question, yes, he will do it. Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Yes, he will. And so, again, he is just again reinforcing what's being said here. I think he's reinforcing the contents of Psalm 110, quite frankly, In Psalm 110, which historically takes us from Jesus at the right hand of God all the way to the setting up of the kingdom and the final judgments. But um, in compact form. Now, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, very interesting figure. I'll tell you, Melchizedek, quite frankly... Had one purpose for coming upon this earth. That's for Psalm 110 and for the book of Hebrews. I'm confident of that. Melchizedek, he appears in Scripture only once. He's spoken about in Psalm 110 in Hebrews, but he appears only once, way back, way back in, in, in Genesis 14, 18 to 20, and I'll read it to you. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine now he was a priest of God most high now God most high is a title for God he was a priest of God most high it didn't say thee but of God most high as a name Okay, he blessed him That's Melchizedek blessed Abraham that's who he's meeting with and said blessed be Abram of God most high so these people are of the same God So Melchizedek is a priest of God the Most High. Abraham is a follower of God the Most High. And then he goes on to say, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, says Melchizedek, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now the scene in Genesis was they just went out with the king of Sodom and some other people, fought a war, won the war, came back, And there was Melchizedek. And after this appearance of Melchizedek, nothing more is said or heard or seen of him. This is it. This is it. We have nothing else in scripture of him doing anything or saying anything. But this is enough. This is enough. This man, I believe, was just like a lot of people. Just like, actually, everyone here that's a true believer were all called and brought in for a purpose. This was Melchizedek's purpose, to be there as the king of Salem. Well, what is that? He goes, well, Melchizedek, see, is what what we often call is a type of Christ. Melchizedek is both king and priest. Melchizedek's a type of Christ, both king and priest. Now, which makes him unique, extremely unique, and Melchizedek is extremely unique being that, and so is Christ being priest and king. See, why, why not according to Melchizedek, why not the Levitical priesthood that began with Aaron? Well, Messiah Jesus, first thing I want to point out one thing else. Melchizedek was king of Salem. King of Salem means, what does Salem mean? peace. He was a king of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. If that isn't a type of Christ somebody tells him what it is. I mean it has it, got to be, right? Another little interesting point, Melchizedek lived in a time in the time of Abram Abraham and nothing more is spoken about him at all until approximately a thousand years down the road, where David writes him into Psalm 110, and another thousand years or so passes, and we are given the Book of Hebrews. Okay, and and, and in the Hebrews. It is clearly stated that the one referred to in Psalm 110 is, in fact, our king and high priest, Jesus Christ. That is a fact. Let's move on. Let's, now, let's turn to Hebrews. Let's turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll uh, pick up the pace a little bit. Now as our great high priest and here's where the big blessing comes into every one of us that are his followers. And this is something the the world is going crazy, it's upside down and people are losing their minds even more so than normally. And we're hearing some horrible things not only about Israel, but I notice that they're sp- it's they're spreading out their hatred. It's Even speaking about the church. Okay, I was wondering when it would really start. You know, Um, all right. Hey, bring it on, you know. Bring it on. Because this is our God right here. Listen to him. Hebrews 6. um, Matter of fact, uh, Melchizedek, they started to mention Melchizedek already in chapter 5. We can't do that. Hebrews, fantastic book on this. Hebrews, let's read verses, chapter 6, verses 17 through 20. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise of the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. Hmm, interposed with an oath. I wonder what that's referring to. You want to just keep going. In order that by two unchangeable things, unchangeable, just like God, unchangeable, unchangeable, in which it is impossible for God to lie. We may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. The hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil of reference to the high priest going back into the Holy of Holies. Back up here in a minute. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, unchangeable promise. God again, is immutable. He makes the promise, He's going to keep the promise, no matter even what we do.. Because yeah? no you know what? And that's actually the mark of a true believer when one is truly transformed by the power of God. oh, yeah, we're going to sin but we're not going to deny him and go running off and stay there. Okay? We're going to be there. We're going to be there. For his purpose, it says interposed by an oath, just like he did with Abraham and David. He he made that that oath again in Psalm 110, this oath. He is the intercessor. He goes within the veil. Okay? We can keep reading again. Um, Hebrews goes on to say, verse in 7, 1 through 3, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met, who met Abraham and, and as he returned from the slaughter of the kings, blessed him, to whom also Abraham, proportioned a tenth part of the spoils, by the transition of his name, again, king of righteousness, and also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father without mother without genealogy having neither beginning nor end or days of life but made like the son of God he abides a priest perpetually okay so he's the perfect type of Christ you can't find a parent for him you can't find any descents for him that doesn't mean he just popped in out of nowhere but I you know I believe he's a real guy and he wasn't an angel he was a real man who was a priest and to go any farther than that I can't say I have nothing more than that <laughs> to tell you. Because Melchizedek is not the issue. What he is type of is the issue. The fact that as priest of the most high God um, and king of Salem. You know, Salem would later be Jerusalem. May ring a bell, Salem, Jerusalem. All right. And when the king returns, he's going to be king sitting on the throne. What town is he going to be in? Jerusalem. Okay. I mean, the type just keeps going. You know, you just, it's just so consistent. And then Hebrews just goes on to show the superiority of Christ to just all other priests. I mean, when you talk about priests, for one, for one thing, Jesus can't be a priest of the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, Aaron. Number one, scripture makes it perfectly clear, and Jesus was from the line of the tribe of Judah. Okay? The priesthood is from the line of the tribe of what? Levi. So, it wouldn't work that way. And it's in the law that, number one, priests are not to be kings, and kings are not to be priests. And every king that tried it, it ended badly for them. So, you don't that's just not the way it goes. And Jesus is not going to violate the law. But it goes on. I mean, 7, uh, 21 through 28. I'm going to read a few more here because this is what's important uh, for, a lot, for of us all. Especially as we, <clears throat> um, we approach the, the Thanksgiving. If, in case you're looking for something to be thankful for, Christ as our high priest is a tremendous thing to be thankful for. Okay? And I know you're thankful for it. But just think about it, think about it. You know, when you sit down and say, wow. I mean, this is our God. This is our savior. For they indeed became priests with an oath, without an oath, but he, that's talking about the regular priest, but he, that's Christ, with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever. See there again, Psalm 110 being directly quoted again. So much more about Jesus has become the the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. See, Christ continues because he's eternal. He's not going to die. He's there forever. So much the more, also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the one hand... Existed in greater numbers because they were prevented from death continuing but he on the other hand because he abides forever holds his priesthood permanently hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them you know that Jesus is yes he's at the right hand of the father of God right now making intercession for us you read scriptures there's others that show how Satan the accuser is up there accusing Jesus nope they're mine I mean Romans 8 has a wonderful passage on that I might actually not on the notes I may go there anyway but Verse 26 For it is fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, okay, which the priest had to do, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came by the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. That's the Son of God. That's our great high priest. I mean, it, it just keeps going on. He, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, um, Hebrews ten eleven to 13, don't read that one. where he says, and every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sins but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time sat down at the right hand of God. Okay? He did that sacrifice and then after that what did he do? Rose from the dead ascended to heaven sat down at the right hand of God which signifies again once for all. He does not, does not need to come back and do it again and that's what as a catholic 12 years of Catholic school. Every time they do a mass, they're crucifying afresh. Quite frankly, if they knew any better, that would be blasphemy. That's not what it is. That's denying his sacrifice, is accomplishing anything. If you've got to keep doing it, that puts him in the category of being just some more regular priest. No, he is much more than that. Waiting from that time on until his, check this, until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. It's done. It's complete. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he was not kidding. It is finished. He wasn't just talking about the event. He was talking about the payment for sin. It is finished. It's complete. No more that matter of fact, it is finished that word it is finished to tellsty it's one of those words that was used in business transactions. It would be like stamping your receipt paid in full. that's what that means. it is finished. it's done it's accomplished you're good to go. you come now back to Psalm 110 in the last three verses we've got um, <clears throat> we've got about five or six minutes to Explain the second coming. No big deal. <laughs> Let's read it. And I think we can we can fill in the gaps from all that we know from our past studies and readings from the Old Testament prophets, book of Revelation, and so forth. Psalm 110, beginning, picking up at, at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. Now here's the Lord. This is referring to Jesus, is at Your right hand, that's referring to the Father, okay? The Lord is at your right hand. He, that's the Lord, will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. What? That's the nations. Fill them with corpses. There's going to be a body count beyond belief. I'm telling you, when this happens. Jesus said this is the worst time mankind has ever seen. I mean, you can trust him. Let's stop right there in 5 and 6. Just to give you something you can look up on your own. There's no way in the world I can look those up now. Where it says, Lord, the Lord is sitting at the right hand. The Lord Christ will return as conquering king, wielding the judgment of God. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. A good one, well I'm tempted to go there anyway. But in, in Daniel chapter two, do you remember the story of the Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the statue? And it's shown that statue represented four kings, four kings and kingdoms that represented those nations that would have influence over Messiah. The last king was, the last of those four was divided into two pieces. And it, and it has a picture of a, then the, it goes on, and there was a stone that was not cut with hands that comes flying out of the sky. And hits that statue at its feet that has uh, ten toes, ten nations. If you're in, if you remember those prophetic passages about the final nation confederacy when Antichrist is around, he strikes it, boom, down it goes. I mean that stone. That's not just. Oh, it'd be nice. Let's use a stone in this. No, that stone. Who is our rock? Okay. I mean we sing about him. Our rock of ages. Who is our? Who is our? Chief cornerstone, Christ. He is to them that don't believe the stone of stumbling. But us, he's our, he's our foundation stone. Okay, you see that, that stone, and that, that's in Daniel 2, chapter 2, but verses 44 to 45 is the end part of it. You can see that whole shattering the kings. There's just a few places. Daniel 11, 36 to 45. Joel 3, 1 through 17. Zechariah 14. I mean, it's just everywhere. It's all over the place. It's all over the place in the Old Testament. It's, and then Revelation. Don't forget that one. I mean, he will judge among the nations. Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. Right? Uh, he will fill them with corpses. That is, the nations with corpses. Yeah, Revelation 8, 9, and 14. You can read portions in there. Uh, Revelation 8, 8 to 11. 9, 15 to 18. And 14, 14 to 20. You'll actually get some numbers. Okay? You'll actually get some numbers. And they're huge Huge numbers. And then finally. He says too. He will shatter the chief men. Over a broad country. Again Revelation 16. 13 and 14. Revelation 19. 19 to 21. Again and Revelation 20. Satan himself. Being the. Top of that pile. will He too will one day. Be destroyed. When he is. One day taken and thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever, never to be seen again. Then we get verse 7. And we'll take our last few minutes to try to explain this. This one, very interesting theories out there (laughs) about this. And it's kind of a difficult one too because there's not a lot of... uh, I'll give you a few things. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Now I believe what's going on here in the context of what we've read, especially in verses 5 and 6, and you go back, you know, that he will <clears throat> make that enemy a footstool, the scepter will go forth, he will rule in the midst of, your, of his enemies, and it's like a little bit of a break where he's like talking to believers, hey, he's, he's the judge of the world, but he's your high priest. I mean, this is, this is what's cool about this, this psalm. I mean, there's so many good things. He's our king. He's not our judge. That's one thing you can be thankful for. He's our king, our high priest. Not our judge. Not our judge. Okay? Among other things he is to us, but those two in this psalm. And he will drink from the brook by the wayside. I'm going to think this picture is it's kind of a very quiet. Can you just somebody just kind of dipping their hand into the brook and drinking something. Well, maybe does it allude back to where Gideon and the 300 maybe, and they're kind of playing on that and going, I don't know. I mean, I think if it was, it might have said so, but that's just me. I don't like supposing, you know. Um, I'm just going to take it for the picture. And in the context here where he's just destroyed all the bad guys, they're gone. He's, he's taken them out. It's, I think it's more pictures a mighty warrior, the battle's over, and he like dips down into the brook, takes a nice sip of cool water to refresh himself after the big battle, and then it says, it's almost like, and then therefore he will lift up his head. Well, Lift up his head. I think what that means here, again, in light of the context of Psalm 110, and that's really the only context we have. If we start reaching around, we can get led off into the bushes someplace. And so, and they might have thorns, so stay out of there. So, I believe what this is talking about, he's lifting up his head in triumph over his enemies. I mean, after all, Why? Because as great high priest, who, what did he offer as the sacrifice? Himself. Himself. And what does scripture say about him as the sacrifice? Isaiah 52, 13 says, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And that servant, psalm goes, that servant song of Isaiah goes right into Isaiah 53 where it describes his death and sacrifice for sin. And then, of course, Philippians 2 We all know that one, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, it says, For this reason, and it's talking about his sacrifice, For this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what I think is going on. And, and that's when he does come back. Yeah, there's going to be, I mean, there's going to be literally hell to pay for those that don't believe. But I'm telling you what, it's a time of blessing. And it's a time that he will, that he will actually um, <clears throat> be put on that throne in his rightful position as king of kings and lord of lords to be worshipped and honored by the entire earth. He'll be in his rightful spot. Now he's, a, he's in an elevated spot. He's in the right hand of God, and um, I think in closing, I'd like to close with actually reading another psalm, but it's the one right next door that's not there by mistake, I don't think. After reading something like this, Psalm 111, Psalm 111 says, and we'll end with this, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. In the company of the upright and in the assembly, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He he will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom and good understanding have all those who do his commandments his praise endures forever let's close heavenly father we truly thank you lord for this word you've given us and lord we just pray that we've done justice to your word and and lord truly you you are a god that now sitting at the right hand of the father and even there You're looking out for us. And again, Lord, we just thank you for the many blessings you've given us, all of which we have not deserved, but Lord, too. May you get honor and glory from everything we continue to do and say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.